Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thanks for joining us. What Florida city has a labyrinth of mysterious tunnels? A genuine piece of land that belongs to Cuba and was once considered the cigar capital of the world. You guessed it, Ybor City, Tampa's premier historic district. This gem of a city has a unique and twisted past. Michelle and I spoke with Gary Mormino, one of the foremost authorities on Florida history and culture, to get the inside scoop on Tampa's roots in our final episode from our trip to the Cigar City. Gary is a writer, historian, and Tampa Bay Times contributor. He's also the Frank E. Duckwall Professor of History Emeritus and former director of the Florida Studies Program at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg. I wanted to ask you about the underground tunnels of Ybor City. Ybor is known to have a network of underground tunnels, and really the question on everyone's mind is what purpose do you believe that they served for the city? We don't know. Really? <laughs> but there's some intriguing possibilities. Had, this, had the question about underground tunnels been raised 30 years ago, I knew dozens of people who I think could have given us legitimate answers. There are so many competing answers right now. The answer may be they were for sewage. One thing they were not for was, you, and you hear this a lot, is they would unload illegal bootleg liquor and bring it in Ybor City. All you had to do is play policeman to do that, and that was being done anyway. So it had right. nothing to do with prohibition liquor. The best answer I've heard, and I've got a number of newspaper headlines to document this, it may have been to bring in illegal uh, traffickers, sex, sexual slavery in, in the 1920s and 30s. Oh, no. There was, in the early 1920s, Congress passed a draconian immigration bill, the most stringent in American history, which essentially meant no new immigrants from Southern, Eastern, or Central Europe, which had been 98% of the immigrants from 1880 to 1920. Italians, Greeks, Jews, Slavs, Poles, all those groups, there was a real backlash against them. So how do you bring uh, groups in? And particularly, uh, this is hooked to Cuba. When Cuba outlawed slavery, they brought in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of Chinese laborers. And many of the documents I've seen, the, the, the illegal traffickers were bringing in Chinese women, probably for prostitution. But we don't know. I hope in my lifetime I find out uh, an answer, but you would think there would be an answer by now. But I've, there's just a lot of conflicting theories. Yeah, Tampa was okay. a very corrupt town. Uh, I talked to a lot of bootleggers. <laughs> One guy I interviewed, seriously, before the interview, he told me, Gary, I've been arrested 67 times. What? But I have no arrest record. <laughs> and his wife is screaming at him, don't tell him that. And he said uh, his family made, uh, they were Sicilian, they made and trafficked illegal booze. And about every three months, he'd get a phone call from the Tampa Police Department. And they'd say, Tony, Sam, come on down. We need to arrest you again. And he'd come down. He'd pay his fine. And then they'd ask him, what name do you want to be arrested under? And he'd create an Italian name, Tony Stefani. <laughs> and uh, the next day, there'd be seven 
Sicilians would be arrested for moonshining, mm -hmm. but it was all for public consumption. It yeah, had, it had no reality. Yeah, that's what I. A that's, long way of telling you, I we. It has nothing to do with bootlegging, but that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we were we were actually talking about that last night. I said I do believe there were raids and stuff, but only for like to save face in public to no. give the appearance that the local authorities were doing something, but it was just a ruse. And if you were not paying the police, they would raid you. Ah. I talked to a guy named uh, Anthony, forgotten his name, an okay. elegant Sicilian man who met Fidel Castro, by the way, but he told me at an early age, in Ybor City, one way of betting, you know what Belita is? Belita yeah. in Ybor City was illegal gambling, but it was the uh, numbers game with a Cuban accent. And to place your bet, many of the superstitious immigrants believed in the book called La China Chorada, the Chinese dream book. And it had 100 numbers, and in each number there was a figure. So if you dreamt of a rat, it told you what number you should place that day. And, and so uh, his father woke up one morning and said, I've had the most vivid dream. And he consults a dream book, and it takes $5. Normally people would bet a nickel, yeah. a dime. And he bet it, and he wins. Oh, my God. He wins. But the Boletero, the numbers runner, escaped. Uh, he, apparently, too many people bet that number, and he left for Cuba. So there's no one to pay him. So he dresses young Anthony up, and they go to the police station. And I always ask my students on the tour, so what do you think happened? And they said, well, he's arrested. No, they, they send him back, and they pay him off. He showed them his receipt. And they paid him off. And why would the police pay someone's illegal gambling? And, and it's because they were in on it. The police were in on the Bolita. So there's really no reason for the underground tunnels to be, <laughs> to be a rum-running tunnel. No. Is there a way that you can date when the tunnels were made? I'm unaware. that You would certainly assume so if you've got some urban architects people, experts on sewers, and that would, that would certainly apply. Uh, but no, I'm not aware of anyone who's done that. Are there some form of blueprints or any, any sort of schematic of the well, tunnel you would system? think so. You can't, I mean, there's no way you can build a tunnel without city Something. officials knowing yeah. about this. So I wonder if... And remember, the, the tunnels go to the port. That's the thing. Ah. There's a port of Ybor City, so that you have to keep that in mind, which you would also think the tunnels would flood. But Have you been well, in the tunnels at no, all? Like, have you have seen not. it? Okay. No. And to be a sewage thing, isn't it, I mean, have you seen photos or anything? Like, wouldn't it be sort of elaborate to have it utilized as a sewer system? No? If it is a sewer system, then... Wouldn't it be designed to mirror other sewer systems? You know what I mean? Like, would there be a typical... It's very logical, but I don't yeah. know the answer. Yeah. yeah. So moving on from, you know, that and into, you know... <laughs> there's a piece of land here that's owned by Cuba. Yes. It's the Parque Amigos de Jose Marti. Can you explain the founding of that park? It's, it's a great story. It's, it's movie-worthy uh, material. Jose Marti was a uh, criollo, a creole. That's where the word creole comes from. Uh, that is, his, I think his mother was from the Canary Islands. His father was from Cuba. So uh, 
That is, like many, he, he kind of had one foot in the old world, one foot in the new world, but he was more new world than old world. And in 1868, a revolution breaks out in Cuba that's called the Ten Years' War, 1868 to 1878. And uh, it's the, the first great rebellion against Spain. And it's very bloody. And Martí is arrested for protesting in school, supporting the rebellion. He could have been executed. I, I think he's sent to the Isle of Pines for a brief time. And then in a curious form of Spanish punishment, they exile him to Spain. Now, why would you? <laughs> and, but the idea, I think, was once this young revolutionary sees how refined and cultured Spain is, he'll realize right. how silly he was. And he gets a law degree. He gets married there. And uh, in fact, he becomes more revolutionary. And of all places, uh, after moving to Venezuela, other places, he winds up in New York City, uh, 1880s. And he's a fascinating figure, so much like many contemporaries today. He idealized American liberty and virtue and democracy. He thought we just had the perfect system, but he also feared American power. And one of his great fears was someday America is going to take over Cuba. So this is always in the back of his mind. But he's also a poet, a world-class poet. In fact, one of his poems was put to music, Guantanamo. Really? Is Jose Marti. It's about a young girl from Guantanamo, of all places. How ironic is that? He's writing about revolution, but he doesn't know revolution. He's, he's a young man in New York. He loves American baseball. He loves Coney Island. <laughs> and in 1891, the cigar makers of Tampa, in Ybor City, decide to invite him down. He has a following now to give a speech. And he's very nervous about this. He's a cushion revolutionary. He's never been. And these, there, are, there are veterans in Ybor City, which was founded in 1886, who were revolutionaries in 1868, who might have lost their parents. And uh, as he passed, the train passed Ocala, Florida, he saw a burned out pine forest. And he has a metaphor. When he arrives, he, he calls the Tampanos in Tampa, you're the young pines of the revolution. Hmm. Your parents were the pines that were devoured in the forest. And they take him over. He gives his first speech in the, uh, in the only school in Ybor City. And he begins his speech with probably the most famous sentence in Cuban history. Para Cuba que sufre la primera palabra. For Cuba who suffers the first word. And that crowd is electrified, uh, of course. And for the next seven or eight years, he returns something like 25 times. Generally, he will come to Ybor City, and then he will go to Key West. I think it was 1892. Spain has been spying on Marti. He's, he's an enemy. He's spreading sedition. And a Spanish agent poisons his wine. And he's, he's dying. And they take him into the parlor of a boarding house owned by black Cubans, Paulina and Ruperto Pedrosa. And she nurses him back to health. For this, she is now known as the mother of the apostle. You gotta love these religious metaphors. And when Marti would return, he would insist on staying with them. He was also not, he was also being very savvy. He realizes when Cuba becomes free, Cuba is going to have 
a race problem. But it will be Cuba's problem, not Spain's problem. Marti, when the, when the war breaks out, the, the uh, revolution breaks out, the Cuban War of Independence is called. We call it the Spanish-American War, but it was the Cuban War of Independence for two years before we got involved, three years actually. And Marti is in New York City and there's a group called the Junta that's gonna run. They declare that on the beginning of Carnival, February 28th, I think, or 25th, 1895, the revolution will begin in Cuba. And the orders of insurrection are written out and they're rolled inside a cigar and in Ybor City. Uh, and, and they roll five identical cigars. And the guy who takes the cigar to the military leader is pretending to smoke the one with the message inside. And the war breaks out. Marti volunteers and is immediately killed on the battlefield. Wow. If you go to Central Park, the southern entrance, there's a fabulous statue of Jose Marti. His horse is rearing in the air. He's been shot. But he's more valuable as a martyr now. Years later, we're talking 40 years later, a Cuban dictator is in the power by the name of uh, Batista, Fulgencio Batista. There's a very creative relationship between Cuba and Ybor City. The groups who are constantly coming and going, and he decides he's going to purchase that property, the boarding house, and make it into a museum of the Spanish-American War. And he purchases it, Fidel takes over in mm -hmm. New Year's Eve, uh, 1959, and a year or two later, the property, the, the boarding house simply collapses. It has so many termites in it. So it's basically a lot, which it is today. And uh, locals wanted, and it is owned by the Cuban government. Apparently they pay taxes on it. The checks has never been cashed on the, on the property, but it's the only piece of property owned by Cuba in the U.S., I believe. E.J. Salcinas Jr., the state's attorney here, used to joke that when, uh, if, when he was in power, if there was ever a murder on the property of the uh, Marti Park, he, he, he told the policeman, drag that body to the, to the street, <laughs> to, yeah, to, to the, the street. American <laughs> side. I don't want an international incident. So that's um, funny. That's, and it's used for protest. One of Marti's famous poems began, I, I plant a white rose, I plant a red rose, and on one side were white roses and the other side red roses. So it still is a political kind of testing ground. When you walk up to the park, you'll see these stones laid out yes. along the sidewalk with the flag painted on them. What are those markers for? I believe they're for the uh, provinces in Spain, or in Cuba. So either, I think, 13 provinces, and each province has, has the name and the uh, capital and things like that. Yep. If you look uh, toward the back, you'll see several plaques, and there's a plaque of Polina Pedrosa. And there's also one of the Black Caesar, Juan Garcia. I, I may, I'm not sure that's the right name, but uh, he's known as the Black Caesar during the revolution. And Cuba was probably winning that rebellion when the United States and the U.S. Maine interferes. And what's, what's, with, what's with all the chickens? You know, that is, that is another question that seems to be elusive. I mean, <laughs> I came, to, when I arrived, I, I would come down to Ybor City two or three times a week with my tape recorder to interview old timers. I'd go inside the mutual aid societies and there'd be 
35 people over the age of 70. And I'd sit down. And I don't remember any chickens. And yeah. I, I think it's a relatively new phenomenon in the last 20 years. Uh, and whether they were imitating Key West, and if you mean right. Key West. Yes, it's chickens. Them, yeah. But uh, it's become a problem and, and a nuisance. But I think there's a ordinance you can't harm chickens. I should add, I, I grew up on a chicken farm in Illinois. <laughs> Did you really? I know my chickens. Yeah, right. What do you think the park represents for Cuban It represents people? your values. If you're, if you're a critic of Fidel today, the park is your sounding board. You plant a, a white rose. If you're comfortable with Fidel, you plant a red rose. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a uh, community sounding board. Cuba is known for its huge export of like Cuban cigars. And I wonder if, if that had anything to do with Ybor becoming a huge cigar okay. manufacturing city. The cigar industry was in deep decline in, in the 50s. So since World War I, Americans had been shifting to cigarettes, which are addictive. Cigars are not. And cigars by the 50s, I think, reminded people of their grand, grandfather's uh, just w wasn't a cigar culture anymore like it was. And most of the cigars produced in Ybor City in the 50s were made by machines, not tabaqueros and tabaqueros. So you, you did have, I, and still when I was here in the 70s and 80s, there were still rooms where you could see people making them by hand. Uh, there's a famous story, movie-worthy scene, when... President John Kennedy in 1962 calls his press secretary, Pierre Salinger, to his office and said, Pierre, you have 24 hours to go out. I want you to find as many hand-rolled, pure Habana, puro Habana cigars as you can get. Mm -hmm. Upmans, I mean, the Romeo, Romeo and Julietas. And he goes out and brings thousands, you know, scores of cigar boxes in and uh, the next day, and Kennedy reaches in his drawer and signs the Cuban embargo, <laughs> making it illegal to import Cuban cigars. This is, uh, I think, in October 1962. And apparently, I, I don't know if anyone's ever proven this, but I've heard this many times, the president was willing to exempt Cuban cigars. And the locals here they said, no, we want to keep Cuban cigars out of the market. Right. But it was the timing was all wrong. Very interesting. Yeah. Everything's so interesting. So I was lucky to wind up here. I knew nothing. In fact, I did not know how when I came for the job interview. I did not know how to pronounce Ebor. I mean, if you think about it, it's a, most Anglos would say Ybor. A really interesting town. Thank you, Gary, for your time. Ciao, Bella. <laughs> Thank you. Gracias. That was Gary Mormino, giving us the fascinating history of Tampa's historic Ybor City. Next, we feature a story about lost treasure and Tampa's most famous pirate that never was. Or was he? This story can be found in Charlie Carlson's book, Weird Florida. Southwest Florida's Lost Treasure Florida tops all other states in buried and sunken treasure, and only a fraction of it has been found. From the Fernandina at the tip of Florida and up the Gulf Coast to Pensacola, 
there could literally be billions in gold, silver, and jewels waiting to be discovered. As an example of what awaits the lucky treasure hunter, a cache of gold coins was found in the dunes of what is now the Canaveral National Seashore in 1969. And several years ago, while building a road in Brevard County, workers unearthed 13 chests of coins. Spanish doubloons and pieces of eight have been found by beachcombers on Florida beaches after heavy storms. Some of this gold and silver washes ashore from ancient wrecks, but the buried loot was most likely hidden by pirates, like Black Caesar, Calico Jack, Morgan, Lafitte, and other ocean bandits who sailed under the black flag. Pirates were not the only ones after gold and silver. Florida's early Indians salvaged treasure from the Spanish galleons whose unfortunate captains sank them in shallow waters or wrecked them on the reefs along the coasts. We can only imagine how much treasure ended up lost in Florida. The most famous Florida pirate was Jose Gaspar. Although some stories claim he was just a mythical character, there are accounts that lend evidence to the fact that he was a real person. Since 1904, Tampa has kept alive Florida's pirate past in its annual Gasparilla celebration. During the three-day event, a massive pirate ship, the Jose Gaspar, sails into Tampa's harbor and pirate reenactors invade the town. At 165 feet in length, with three 100-foot masts, the Jose Gaspar is considered the only fully rigged pirate ship in the world. Gaspar, who also went by the name Gasparilla, was a saltwater scourge who, surprisingly, had been raised among Spanish aristocracy. He pulled off his first pirate stunt at the age of 12 when he kidnapped a girl and held her for ransom. He was arrested and given the option of imprisonment or going out to sea with the Royal Spanish Navy. Needless to say, he went to sea. He was later involved in a love affair with the king's daughter, that is, until she accused him of stealing the royal crown jewels. With that, Gaspar decided to leave Spain, and in 1783 he began attacking any ship flying the Spanish flag. During his 38-year career as a pirate, Gaspar attacked over 400 ships in the Gulf waters of Florida, including, supposedly, the vessel carrying over $11 million in gold bullion that the United States had paid Napoleon for the Louisiana Purchase. If you find that hoard, just be advised that at last report, France is still seeking reimbursement from any treasure hunter who finds its gold. Gaspar established his camp at the mouth of Charlotte Harbor. To add a little protection to his domain, he allowed another notorious buccaneer, Black Caesar, to build a camp to the south on Sanibel Island. Gaspar not only took loot from ships, but also took women and passengers to be his personal concubines. Those who were from wealthy families were put in a stockade on Captiva Island and held for ransom. Some historians believe that is how Captiva Island got its name. Gaspar and Black Caesar were buddies until 1817, when Gaspar found that Caesar had stolen some of his women. Gaspar attacked Caesar's camp on Sanibel Island, driving the rival pirate to Florida's Atlantic coast. Caesar did not have time to recover any of his buried loot on the west coast. Since Gaspar did not know where it was, we can assume that it's still there. 
It has been estimated that Gaspar himself had $30 million in treasure buried in 13 chests and kegs within the vicinity of his camp. This does not include smaller caches buried by his crew, which numbered at least 100 men. The men were paid a share of the loot whenever a ship was plundered, and some of the small caches of coins found by treasure hunters probably belonged to the individual crewmen. Gaspar's reign as a pirate came to an end in the spring of 1822. He planned to retire from pirating, but when his lookout spotted what looked like a helpless merchant vessel flying the British flag, Gaspar decided to plunder one more ship. It would be his last. He sailed out ready to take on the ship, but as he drew closer, he saw the British flag come down and the American flag rapidly hoisted up the main mast. He had been duped by the oldest pirate trick in the book. The ship was the USS Enterprise, a man-of-war vessel on a mission to put Gaspar out of business. Allegedly, Juan Gomez, one of the crew acting on Gaspar's orders, offloaded treasure from the pirate ship into a long boat and with a team of men rowed for the shore and then up the Peace River. They set fire to the long boat, but because of the weight of the gold, had to leave some of the loot behind. The crew carried the rest of the treasure on their backs and buried it somewhere in the swamps along the Peace River. In the meantime, back at sea, Gaspar, rather than risk capture in the hangman's noose, committed suicide by wrapping himself in an anchor chain and jumping overboard. His ship was hit with cannon fire and soon followed him to the bottom, along with an estimated $1 million worth of gold that was still on board. The loot is still on the bottom of the sea. The last known living members of Gaspar's crew were Juan Gomez and Juan Gonzalez. On July 12, 1900, Gomez drowned while fishing, having lived to the ripe old age of 122 or 120 or maybe even 119, depending on which story is to be believed. The St. Augustine record reported that at the time of his death, Gomez was the oldest man in the United States. The old salt was known for his tall tales of pirating, which many people did not really believe. However, a few years before his death, he told a story to a visiting journalist about a Spanish princess who was held by Gaspar. He said Gaspar had captured a ship with several women passengers, and in the group was a Spanish princess. As a captive, she became Gaspar's favorite, even though she rejected his affections. The infamous pirate gave her an ultimatum, either submit or he would cut her head off. She rejected him one last time and was beheaded. Gomez sketched a crude map for his visitor showing where the princess was buried. A few years later, a grave was found at the exact location indicated on the map. In the grave was a headless female skeleton with a detached skull lying next to it. As for Juan Gonzalez, he continued pirating up to the Civil War, but age was catching up with him, so he settled down on Shell Creek near Lettuce Lake in DeSoto County, where he lived for many years. He claimed to have been one of the crew that carried some of Gaspar's treasure up the Peace River and said that a cask of it was buried on the shore of Lettuce Lake. After the Civil War in the 1870s, the old pirate made a proposition to two ranchers, offering to cut them in for a share of the booty if they would help him dig it up and haul it. As agreed upon, the two men showed up at Gonzalez's cabin with a small boat and a wagon. Gonzalez told them he was not feeling well and asked them to come back in a few days. When the two men returned, they found Gonzalez dead on the floor. 
After burying him, they searched the cabin and found a jar of gold coins and a small sheet of copper engraved with a code indicating the location of the treasure. Since the 1870s, treasure hunters have been trying unsuccessfully to crack this code, which some say is in Spanish. Others say it contains only compass bearings. The location is around Lettuce Lake. Decipher the code and you might find some of Gaspar's lost treasure. But as fast as Florida changes, don't be surprised if you find a new shopping mall sitting square on top of it. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please, join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. As a fan of the SoFlo Weird Show, there are many ways you can become involved. Our goal is to create a community of weirdos who celebrate all things strange in the Sunshine State. Here's Michelle to tell you how you can join our team. Are you a super fan and weirdo to the core? Then consider joining our SoFlo Weird Street team. Get free stickers and represent us on social media with hashtag SoFloWeirdStreetTeam. Just send us a message on social or through our website and you'll be on your way to street team status. Like what you hear on this podcast? Then consider giving us a review and please share with your friends. If you wish to support the SoFlo team in our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs>